Welcome to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host Mason S. With me as always is Travis K. This podcast is not meant to replace meeting, sponsorship, step work, or service. This is meant to be just another tool in your recovery toolbox. Our guests are here to share their experience, strength, and hope with recovery through Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you for joining us. All right, welcome to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mason S., and with me, as always, is my man, TK. Yeah, yeah. Here we are back again. Today, we have Miss Stacy K. Stacy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. Yeah, we're doing good. We're glad you could join us. Won't you start with your clean date and give your home group a shout out? All right. So I'm Stacy. I'm an addict. My clean date is April 23rd, 2010. I am a part of the newcomers group in Hohenwald, Tennessee. All right. Newcomers group in Hohenwald. I heard that's a pretty good group. I mean, come on now. It's the best. All right. So walk us through, um, why you decided to ch- choose Narcotics Anonymous as your route to recover from addiction. All right. So, yeah, um, you know, I was full of desperation. The first 10 months of my recovery, um, I didn't do anything that was suggested um, by the the facility that I was at, they said, do 90 and 90, go to meetings and find a sponsor. I did none of that because in my mind, I thought with three kids, I could get a job and I could mimic what normal people do. Um, What I'd found in them 10 months was that um, other people that I worked with were doing things such as going to the bar after work and all that stuff. And um, it became very appealing to me. And I kept replaying in my mind that um, I too could go and do that. What's the harm since, you know, drinking alcohol at that time was not my DOC. But what I'd found was that, you know, my higher power, um, my higher power had other plans. There was a series of events that came to light that brought me back to my hometown and in my hometown was my father. My father was um, actively in Narcotics Anonymous and it just seemed to be the only person, place or thing that um, I could relate to. So I followed along, tagged along with him into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and um, what I'd found was that these people I could relate to. And there was a particular man in there that would always give me a hug, the most sincere hug that um, I ever received. And I don't know, for some reason, I felt safe. Um, The journey of staying in the rooms was because of the men. And I eventually done what was suggested. And I got that sponsor, which um, suggested to me that she would sponsor me with me doing 90 meetings in 90 days and calling her every day. So that's how I ended up in there. And once I dove into the steps, it it kept me coming back. And them 90 meetings in 90 days were very, very important, even though I tried to book that 
at all costs at sometimes, at least 30 days into it. So yeah, that's what led me in. So Stacy, what attracted you to that sponsor that you said you got? So when I came into the rooms, there wasn't a lot of women. Um, we went to both fellowships actually, and I met my sponsor um, in the rooms and I, I, she just had something that I wanted and she stood tall and she held her head high and she had this confidence, this confidence that I always wanted. And she didn't get it by negative attention. She just got it by being herself. Yeah, that's what attracted me to her. She had her her life together and that's what I wanted so bad. Um, and so, yeah, that's what led me to her, to asking her to be my sponsor. We know that you're a mother of three kids and we know that that played a a part and you getting clean. So why don't you walk us through that process? All right. So yeah, part of my story is, um, DCS came in, they, um, gave me no choice. I'd had interactions with DCS before in active addiction, but for some reason I, I kind of slid by and they never done any follow-up, but this particular time there was follow-up and, and the crazy thing is when they walked up to the house I was staying in, I thought they were Jehovah witness. So, um, and this is how my mind was out there in active addiction. So I welcomed them into the home, found out that they're not Jehovah witness. And then we went through the process of, I had, there was nothing I could do in that moment. They were, Either I complied to what they were asking of me or I was not going to go home with my children, which I ultimately didn't go home with them anyways after doing the drug test. So I lost my kids on that day. And that's the day that I decided to do something different because that pain, the series of events that led me into that dark spot could never match up to that pain, that that sense of loss that I had within that day. So I started doing what they suggested, DCS suggested for me to get my children back. I lost them. And I guess I could dive into, you know, uh, I worked really hard. I'd done everything that they required. And one of their requirements was not to go to meetings. I mean, they didn't say don't, but they didn't say you had to go to meetings and do 90 and 90. That was a facility I went to that suggested that. So because they didn't require that, I didn't feel like I had to do them things. It was of no importance because the only important thing was to get my children back. And it took me three months to do so. And thank God I had a family member that was willing to take them and keep them safe during that time. All right, Stacey. So walk us through the process of the first year. Okay. So the first year. So like I said, the first year of my recovery was, in, you know, just following suggestions of my sponsor. Um, I also spent a lot of time in trying to get back and gain back everything I lost, whether it was kids, a roof over our head, all this stuff. You know, I lived with a family member with my three kids for the first year. And so my main goal was to um, was to get everything back that I had lost. I just felt such a huge sense of that. So um I really, even though I was working the steps, I wasn't processing the steps that I was working on. 
But I continued to go to meetings because, man, that was a place where I felt safe. There was nothing in this small town that I could do where I felt that kind of sense of security. I've been to other buildings and tried other routes um, all my life. And I always, you know, I always felt empty until I was in them rooms. And um, them guys, like I said in the beginning, they played a huge part keeping me coming back. And once I started diving into these steps, I started learning things about me, that patterns and stuff that, that just didn't serve me well throughout my life, you know, learning how to have forgiveness learning how to let go of certain things. Cause even though I didn't have drugs anymore, I still had other obsession and compulsions like dating men that, you know, I tried to look to fill that void that it talks about in the the second step, um, filling that void with something. And it was always something negative. So I spent my first year trying to fill that void with other things, not processing steps, trying to be a mother, trying to be, you know, a, a member of society. Like I put a lot of stuff on myself and I don't think I wouldn't be where I'm at today had I not gone through that process. But, you know, um, I made it a lot harder than it had to be in that first year. But I also learned a whole lot within that first year. I started to feel at home at Narcotics Anonymous, so um, which I was grateful for because the first six months was like, you know, a, a bunch of men sitting around the table talking about stuff. And, and my thoughts were, well, these men are like 50 and above. Of course, they find enjoyment with sitting around a table and talking. But, you know, once I started diving into these steps and, and, and listening to the message more than obsessing and compulsing about other things, um, the message became clear. So talk to us about what it was like when the women started to file into your home group. I remember a facility um, got to come into our group and they had started a program on the women's side, which allowed women from that facility to start to, to be able to come in to newcomers. And there were two women in particular that came in. I kind of just was drawn to them. I don't know. I felt like, when the women started coming in, it was just two, mind you, but them two women that came in, we really got close. We really started working this program together. We had the same sponsor. So that was another thing. So we were sponsorship sisters. You know, I got to learn a lot. So one, both these women had children also, and they were in the process, just like I was, of uh, regaining custody back of their children. So we got, we had a lot in common. And so I just really clung to them and they, and they had a similar interest, like I love nature, love camping and all this. And another home group had, um, had a thing they would have every year, which required us to go camping, um, kayaking and stuff like that. So we got to really, um, connect during them times. And then once they got their children back, then our kids connected, which made it a lot easier for us, um, being women with children, because my kids had to come to the meetings with me. Uh, I couldn't leave them all the time just to go to a meeting because, you know, other people didn't understand why I had to go to these meetings every night. 
they didn't understand why I couldn't just be normal and why I needed to hang out with, you know, quote unquote, dope heads all the time. Um, so, and I didn't know how to communicate that with them as to why, because I really didn't know why. I just knew that they had something I wanted and I was staying clean because I was going to them rooms. So, um, yeah, when the women came in, man, it, it started to feel a little more like home and then to get to connect with these women and have all these similarities with the children and stuff like that. It made it so much easier. So how long was you actually in the rooms or how much time did you have clean before the other females started to show up? That was probably a year or a little more after. Yeah. We would have women that would come in and out, but they never stayed. And um, I wasn't at a place in my recovery where I was. um, And two, let me hit on this. Traditions wasn't pushed heavily in the beginning. So I didn't know the importance of unity and all this stuff. Like I didn't have that part pushed on to me or suggested for me to work through. So that way I knew the importance of it. Cause you know, I could have played a huge part in the women that did come in for the little amount of time of them staying, but because of my own character defects and, um, me being selective on who I wanted to talk to or communicate with, it was very difficult. But, you know, today I understand that because I have worked the traditions and stuff. So yeah, to answer your question, it's been a year or so before women came in and actually stuck and stayed. Let's talk about how detrimental that it can be for you to view women as, I don't know, competition or have those insecure feelings towards women versus once you start applying the steps and the traditions and the principles behind them to where you can take that newcomer woman in and show her this new way of life. What does that process look like? So, you know, we read the 12 tradition after at the end of every meeting at our home group and stuff. And, um, and readings were just, pretty much readings to me um, and not knowing enough about the traditions. It was hard for me to practice them. So, you know, I really didn't look at the similarity because I was too focused on the differences. And then my own insecurity of I didn't feel like at that time I had anything good to offer these women because of the differences I was focusing on. Like, well, I don't have no experience with that kind of stuff. How could I help her, you know, and not understanding that practicing the first tradition of unity is important, you know? So that was my main focus. I didn't, I didn't understand a lot of things in the beginning. I I was still selfish, self-centered, and my main focus was to feel better with everything I was trying to push onto myself within the first year. So the women coming in, very few I thought of as as competition, if you will. Um, I just had a lot of insecurities, a lot of shame and guilt that um, I couldn't let go of. And then outside issues, you know, family not understanding, family um, and trying to explain that to them. And I really couldn't 
it was, it's always been hard for me to put into words, especially in that first year as to why I don't, you know, my answer would be, I don't know why I just know I need to do this. All right. So, you know, I think that's, that's important because I I hope my hope is that there's a lot of women that are listening to this and they may be new in the fellowship are experiencing some of those feelings that you talked about in the beginning, but I think it's very important and you may agree with this too, that even though we're all encompassing, I think it's, there are a ton of benefits for the newcomer women to get engaged with the women inside the meeting rather than the men in the beginning. Would you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Heck yeah, I would agree with that. You know, and I always told myself too, I can, you know, I get along with men more than I do women. And that's, that's not true. I mean, I, I just had a, a, my mind was so distorted on certain things. You know, I just wanted somebody or something or some place to make me feel whole. And I guess you could say from my past experiences before coming into the rooms that, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, there was a certain kind of competition level with women, you know, because when you're out there in that darkness, you are experiencing other women trying to take from you the things that that you kept close. And, um, and it seems like it's a struggle. And then... Prior to going to that dark world, I had experiences with, you know, other people that I cared about turning to other women. And so I guess when I come into the rooms, there might have been some kind of competition level. But then again, if you were a strong woman in the rooms, I was intimidated by you because I wanted to be that and didn't know how, or if you were a attractive woman in the rooms, I felt like, well, I need to keep my distance because of my past experiences and I'm afraid you might hurt me. Or you were a woman in the rooms that that had experiences that I had no, you know, uh, I couldn't relate to. And so yeah, and I didn't know how to help certain women. So there was three or four different areas when women comes into the rooms. But in working these steps, man, and diving into these traditions, the traditions, I've said it to me another night was a game changer. You know, one thing that we can relate on is pain. It doesn't matter how we got to that certain level of pain, but we got there. And one thing about women too, we're really hard on ourselves when it comes to shame and guilt, like it will eat us alive. And I'm not taking anything from men. Um, I'm just talking about, I've seen in my experience, women shame and, and not having confidence and, um, feeling less than and, you know, obsessing and compulsing about the opposite sex to make you feel better. Like all them things are a trend when it comes to women. Not all, but most of the time, nine times out of 10, that's the, that's the trend. So Stacy, tell us about how it was in the beginning, you know, you was talking about, you didn't follow the tradition. So let's fast forward to when the group actually starts practicing the traditions how was that for you okay so there was a shift about five years into my recovery where um 
a few people came into the rooms um, really on fire and digging into this whole recovery thing because it was kind of always just a family setting in the beginning. And we'd done things that were, you could say we were a rogue meeting. We'd done what we wanted. And then these people come in, the sponsorship for the men had to extend outside of the rooms at that point because we were so men heavy. So they find these sponsors outside of newcomers and in other states and in other counties. And one thing that they had learned and implemented into our home group was the traditions. Like there was a huge lack of people working traditions. And although our home group was awesome then, we were at a standstill in growth. And so these traditions started coming into the rooms and we started working them. You know, I had two recovering addicts living with me that were family members and and one being my husband that that I heard traditions all the time being talked about and being studied, going back and forth on what things meant. And at that time, I, it kind of soaked into me and I started learning the importance of it. And also going through growing pains at that time for myself, because I was so used to a certain way within my home group. And I'm seeing this shift and everything I loved about the home group prior to this, I felt like I was losing something. And so there was a lot of, I wouldn't say controversy, but back and forth with me, like, because here I am, I'm starting to feel pain again. And, um, and I didn't want to feel pain and I didn't want to feel a loss. And I was afraid that I wouldn't be attracted to this new, um, narcotics anonymous. It has, um, the evidence has shown that, with these traditions being implemented within our home group and us tidying that all up and following rules, like we're addicts, we don't want to follow rules or, or whatever, you know, we piss on our territory and this is our territory and don't mess it up. So when these traditions started getting implemented and in such a way that was understandable to me, I seen the importance of it. And then when I started practicing these traditions in all my affairs, and um, doing tradition work with my sponsees become alive. So take us through this process. You shared with us earlier that you got involved because of a family member. You, like me, know that addiction is very much a family disease, and many families have suffered from addiction through different generations. Talk Mm -hmm. about what it's like having family members actually finding their way into the rooms. Okay. Yeah. So this is a a good one for me. So, you know, I had my dad that was in Narcotics Anonymous and my dad had passed at which I felt, I don't know, a huge desire to continue to go to these meetings. But what I found was I had latched onto his recovery so much that I had to find my own recovery, if that makes sense. And then other family members, such as my brother, my sister, um, my other brother, and then ultimately addiction touched my son. So I'm so grateful to the God of my understanding for whatever force was in me at that time to continue to walk into them rooms when I didn't want to after my dad passed and after I felt like I was a newcomer all over again, which is a good thing, but going through it, it felt like a bad thing. 
because later on addiction, like I said, touched my son. And um, during that time, which is the hardest thing, I thought losing my dad would have been the hardest thing I ever dealt with in recovery, but it actually wasn't. It was watching my kid suffer with the disease of addiction and me being powerless to do anything about it. And it opened my eyes to what my own family went through when I was out there living that way of life. You know, my son, I got to practice these traditions in dealing with him with the help of other addicts, holding me accountable, hold hard boundaries. It's hard to see your son at a, a very defeated state cry and beg to you that he wants to come home. And then you have to tell him no, because in his conversation, I heard things living in a place where there's not no running water, not having no food. Um, and I know what it's like to be an addict. So ultimately, what had him at that state of mind was there wasn't no drugs around at that time. There just wasn't no drugs around. So he was very desperate to want to come home. But what I know is because of Narcotics Anonymous is that with me telling him, hey, I'll help you do anything, but you need to go away for 30 days and reset your mind. And then when his answer was no, that was a red flag to me that he's not ready. He's not willing to do whatever it takes. Um, he's still trying to run the show. And at this time, I'm a married woman. I have a teenage daughter at home and I know what the disease of addiction brings with it when it comes into any kind of environment. It kills and destroys everybody and everything it comes in contact with. And um, I wasn't willing to do that, even though it was still hard to say no to him. But let me say on a good note is because of Narcotics Anonymous and because of them boundaries, there came the day where I received the phone call, Mama, I'm ready. He was ready to do whatever it took. And he did go and reset. And I was able to help him do anything to get on his feet. And he is now a member of Narcotics Anonymous. And he's on service positions and all that stuff. So That's awesome. So why don't you share with maybe a parent, a struggling parent that's in the rooms right now that's dealing with that same ordeal, what would your advice be to them? Or what is your experience that you'd like to share with them as far as what to do? Because, you know, like you said, it's a very perilous situation. In that moment, enabling the disease of addiction will not only kill and destroy the person that you're dealing with, but it will kill and destroy you as a person also. So even though, and women carry such a huge guilt and shame trip. So maybe you haven't talked to your kid in a very long time, but they reach out to you and say, I need, I want help and all this. So at that moment, when you give them a suggestion of be glad to help you, but you need to go away and reset. The reset's not just for them, it's for you too. And if they say no, then that's them trying to control the situation. So at that point, pay attention to that answer because if they say no, they're controlling the situation and you're going to let something in 
that's already trying to control a situation, if they say yes, then, you know, of course be there for them, but don't let shame and guilt drive your decision. If your gut is saying they're not ready, I'm scared, but I can't say no, call somebody, reach out to somebody within your network, call me. 931-306-3798. And I will be glad to, to help walk you through this because it is a very difficult time when you have somebody that you love that is suffering with a disease of addiction. All right. Well, before we wrap up, let's talk about this for a second. What has your process been? Because you talked about struggling with relationships when you first got in. How has your relationships improved throughout your almost 13 years in recovery. And uh, what does your relationship look like with a significant other today compared to what it was like before? Relationships. I never had any like um, guidance on what a healthy relationship was like. Communication is absolutely key. Um, I just wanted somebody to care about me all my life. I just wanted somebody to love me and to also show it in their actions. Because I've had failed relationships, the important thing I have to remember and when I worked these steps was I too played a part in the failure of all my relationships. I played a part, no matter if you've been through mental, physical sexual abuse there is a little bitty part within that situation that I played a part in and today however so I learned a lot so I worked the steps for the disease of addiction and then I get into this healthy relationship and all these walls start going up you know because this is foreign to me and I had to learn to let go of certain things in order for a healthy relationship to flourish. And it took a lot of time. And thank God my husband today is very, very um, understanding. Because one thing I did at the beginning of this relationship that was different was I communicated effectively. Like, I remember our long talks and I just vomited all the bad things about me. I remember doing that. Like, this is what I do during this time. This is what I do during that time. And I have a huge fear of letting somebody in because I don't want them to take anything that I worked so hard away from me. I don't want to ever feel homeless again. I don't want to ever feel lonely again. I made sure and communicated all that kind of stuff to him so he could get an understanding of what he's dealing with, so to speak, because I know for him, it hasn't been easy in the first year, but because I communicated that he had a, a baseline of what I was going through. And instead of him reacting to, if I'm acting out on character defects, instead of him being reactive, he knows to sit back and kind of not take it personal. He understands not to take it personal because it's not him. I guess he does. I mean, I'm sure there's times because he's human too, that he's felt like it was personal, but for the most part, effective, honest communication with somebody is where it's at. And he allows me to be who I am. Like he knows that he knows just like I know that I know that, um, he is my person and I'm his and he has nothing in this world to worry about as far as 
me ever hurting him. And I feel the same. I feel very secure in my relationship today um, where I didn't in the beginning because I brought all that insecurity junk and all them fears into it. And I did that in the beginning here, but we were um, able to communicate and I let him in and let him know I was really vulnerable with who I was. And today in working these steps and following these traditions and, and applying this stuff to my life, you know, I have the confidence that woman that my sponsor was that I wanted to be so bad in the beginning. I get to be her today. Like I hold my head high. Um, I have confidence when I walk into the room and it's a healthy confidence. I genuinely love and care about everybody that comes into them rooms because I know what it's like to be in such a dark place that you cannot see your way out of it. And if I can play any part in making them feel welcome into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous, that is my main goal. You know, it's a running joke because I used to say things like I love newcomers. And from my first year of recovery, I love newcomers that were <laughs> that were men and all this stuff. But now today, I genuinely love newcomers because of the pain that they bring in there. And I know how scary it is to try a new way to live. So, yeah, I hope that hits on what you were asking. My relationships are good today. What is your message to the newcomer that just walks through that door right now at this moment? Man, keep coming back. You never have to use again. Like, keep coming back. If you come into a newcomer's group and I am talking to somebody else and I don't make my way around to you to welcome you. It's not because I don't want you to feel welcome. You are welcomed in them rooms. Them rooms don't belong to me or anybody else. They belong to us, we as a whole. And just keep coming back. Get that sponsor. Get that sponsor. You cannot do this alone. There's no earthly way with all the knowledge I thought I had could I had put it all into action? I didn't know. I knew a lot of things, but I didn't know how to put them into action. But if you come into the rooms, just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. And there's no fairy dust. So on the first meeting, you're not going to feel healed, so to speak. It's going to take time. So give yourself a break and keep coming back. Thank you for joining us on our Living Clean podcast. This is another platform that we can share our message of recovery, which is an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose a desire to use, and find a new way to live. Join that no matter what club. You can contact us through text. The number is 931-306-9364.